You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hey, Typology family, this is Ian Morgan Cron, host of this podcast on which we explore the mystery of the human personality, dare I say the human adventure through the lens of the Enneagram and along with my confrere, my dear friend, Anthony Skinner. Anthony, how are you? Ooh, I'm doing really well. A little catch up. Just moved my parents to Franklin from Mississippi, so my parents are now neighbors Excited about that and doubly excited because our guest today is an old friend of mine as well who we've done some work together with and uh, his book's been life-changing for me as yours has, Ian, and uh, so I'm excited he's here. I'll let you throw out the name. Well, I will in just a moment, but I just want you to know I'm a little I'm a little concerned that your parents are becoming northerners. <laughs> <laughs> God, they're the Yankees. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was a lateral move. <laughs> I don't think they went any further north or south, but. <laughs> well, <laughs> laughing along with us, friend, is our friend and our guest on Typology today, Dr. Chip Dodd. Chip, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, both men, Anthony and Ian. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> now, Chip. I, I got to talk to you, man, about whether or not you're an Enneagram 2 or an Enneagram 8, because there's a, lot of com there's a lot of conversation out there about you, Chip. And here's the word on the street. The word on the street is that everybody who knows you thinks you're an 8. And, and you think you're a 2, and we got to clear this up. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that, because, in fact, I just had a phone call uh, coming on the way in. It was really kind of a gut punch when uh, uh, there was someone who doesn't want to do any work with me, I mean, something like, I don't mean just, you know, in the work counseling and mentoring, but because of this sense of me being too much of a challenger, <laughs> and I mean too much, focused on what I'm doing. But I, I recently took the short version, you know, one of the short versions of the Enneagram, and uh, I was a two. Uh, I don't know if that's because I've calmed down over the years or if it's because the nature of my work has shifted. I don't know if it's my age, but I think at root, I am uh, absolutely wanting to do good for a world in need, and I'm willing to challenge to do it. I don't know what that if that makes sense. But uh, but there's a line we should talk about, Ian. Because it, yeah, it can yeah, make we're going to get to all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to get to all that. We're gonna we're gonna have a good time right now. All right, Chip. That, Ian, that is interesting. That's what I've been hearing from people who um, have worked with me on mission with me. They would say the challenger. Yeah. Okay. So and all the means. Yeah. And you just recently, like even today, had someone who told you that they didn't want to work with you. Let me put some words in their mouth, and you tell me if this is sort of what they said. Mm -hmm. Because you were too aggressive. Uh, too, too, my expectations would be too high about what they would do. Ah. So that would be, there were, they would see me as intolerant and 
when it comes to mission, it's like, are you on this mission and are we going to do this? And are you, are you called to it? Are you willing to do what it takes to do it? That's my question. And then how you go about doing it and whether or not you want to do it, it's okay. You don't have to. But if we're going to do it, let's really do it. But I want you to bring your gifts to it, whatever they are, and apply them. And I will help you stay focused on what we're doing. So that would be probably considered intolerant or times. It's just that the mission matters so much a lot of times that uh, we, I'm open to processing all the feelings that go with that. But are you in it or are you not? And then I tolerate all kinds of people being half in, but somehow it just really matters. I guess I can be probably demanding. Mm, or intense. Or intense or passionate. Mm-hmm. 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 All three. Okay. All three. Because uh, yeah, the word you uh, said was a lot. You wish, said, wish that I were more so. There are times I wish I were more so rather mm-hmm. than less so. My own personal wish. I, I, I Sometimes I'll... I'll see the man in the mirror and say, you know, you could have been more, more focused, more intense, more, more willing to do whatever it took. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. <clears throat> I keep thinking about my own personal mission related to living is helping people see who they're made to be, so they can do what they're made to do. And I see a lot of life because I know the power of the addiction culture, the anxiety culture, and the depression culture, in spite of our technology. We're still doing an increase of the very things that technology can solve, addiction, anxiety, and depression. It's not. So I, I kind of see, you know, the Titanic sinking, and we need rowboats to row towards it, not away from it. We need to go. Mm-hmm. People. So that's that's my thought process when I'm listening to my heart of hearts about mm-hmm. living. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Chip. Um, Sounds very aid, I guess, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it could. There's yeah. actually some other types that could be. But as yeah. well. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's so much shading in the Enneagram, right? These are observably different personality patterns. However, they, they don't, they're not always completely discrete. In other words, there's bleed over, right? There are other numbers that are very, very assertive, can be mm-hmm. very aggressive. Threes, sevens. Um, there's a, the, what we call the one-to-one four. There's the counterphobic six. Uh, so there are other numbers, right, they, that can be aggressive. It's just it's kind of like what you need to do is sort of understand the different shades mm-hmm. before you can make a decision as to which one might be you or somebody else. Um, but the thing we love about the Enneagram chip is that it doesn't just tell people what they do. It tells them why they do it. So here's, a, here's an eight statement. I am a person who feels a need to assert strength and control over others in the environment in order to mask vulnerability and weakness, both from myself and from others. So in other words, an eight typically is a very big, strong, powerful, often domineering person. Uh, and they are that way because they, they, they make a connection between that way of showing up in the world and being safe. So they can be impulsive. They can, you know, express anger pretty readily, right? They, their anger can be flashy and then it goes away, right? Uh, they're often, maybe as younger people, they might be told that they're intimidating and they don't really understand that. Or sometimes people will say, why are you so angry? And they'll be like, I'm not angry. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I'm just doing life, you know? Uh, and um, they often... Uh, they admire strength in other people. They can be a little impatient 
uh, with weakness or what they perceived weakness in other people. Um, but on the ups, I mean, there's so many ups to this, right? They're courageous. They're great leaders. They're powerful. They're straightforward. They're protective. They're particularly of people that need protecting. But they tend to empower, you know, they tend to embody power through control and dominance. So that's an eight, right? And very, very quick. I mean, I could go for three more hours on what eights are like. Now, interestingly, Chip, twos and eights can get confused, and that blows people's minds, okay? And here's, here's how that is. Twos can be very powerful, very dominating, very aggressive. People think of them as just being hugabugs, you know what I mean? Like just big lovers, you know? And it's like, mm, I don't know. I've been run over by a couple of twos. <laughs> I've been hit in the parking lot by a two. <laughs> so, the, it, but what's different is, is that you have, if you're an eight, your power radiates outward and it's very straightforward. There's no hiding it. It's just power that goes out. That's For not Okay, well, the power in the two is that, that was, this is where you, we got to be. This is where, again, it's got to be sort of careful with it. Yeah. A two can be controlling and dominating, but it will always be behind a veneer of, uh, of love. Not always, it's, so it's not always legit. Like sometimes it's just a veneer. It's like they're controlling you, but they're doing it in the name of love. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it's like, <laughs> you know, uh, the name of love comes along and they're like, just sort of like velvet glove. But, but it's, and so sometimes that two love is, it can be very um, codependent and it's like being manipulative and overwhelming smother love. You know, the kind of person I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but so, and the two is a lot more image conscious than the eight is. A lot more image conscious. Mm -hmm. The eight could care less kind of how you perceive them, right? The mm -hmm. two will care about how you perceive them. Mm -hmm. So the two has this need. This is what, this is why they do what they do. The two has a need, a deep need to be liked. Now we all want to be liked, but the two really wants to be liked. It's, it's as if the two has a need to meet the needs of others. So they are wildly wise about, oh my God, they can figure out what another person needs and is feeling in the moment, and they know how to meet the needs of that person in the moment. Uh, and they can, they can actually step out and meet the needs of that person in the moment, even if that person has not asked for that assistance, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, the two can be uh, wrestled with pride, right? In the sense that the two will be like, I know what you need, and I'm going to meet that need. In fact, I am so attuned to your needs that you would be wise just to lay there and let me take care of them for you, you know? And so there's the pride. It's this assumption that I know what you need and I can take care of that need. And I actually, sometimes if you ask a two that's younger or not very traveled in life, they might say that they secretly believe that other people are more needy than they are. And that's why they're here is to meet other people's needs. And of course, that can get pretty sick and codependent if it's not healthy. So they, their, their presentation is very different, though they can often get confused. And as Anthony said, there's a line on the Enneagram between them. So if you're an eight, when you're doing really well, you're healthy, you're secure, you're self-aware, you're going to look like a healthy two, right? But when you're not doing great, you're going to start to look like an unhealthy five. You're going to become somebody that's really withdrawn. You're going to start planning behind the scenes, you know, isolating. Now, if you're a two and you're not doing great, 
you're going to look like an unhealthy, aggressive eight. You're going to, you're going to be full of just anger and resentment and you're going to pop your cork and it's not pretty to watch. And it's a big surprise to everybody when it happens. That's it. So which of those sounds more like you, the two or the eight? Helper two. All right. And yet I've worked in the world requiring an eight. Okay, come on, bring that out for us. Tell yeah. everybody what you mean when you say that. Yeah, so like for 20, and of course it's very, very connected to my background and upbringing, but uh, uh, I, I owned and ran a treatment center for professionals for 20, 20 years and then two years uh, was corporately owned. I sold out uh, at the end, of, end before I started what I'm doing now. And uh, the addictions world requires challenging the denial uh, that's controlled by an ego, which I call easing God out, behind which is a true self in waiting to be helped, hopefully rescued, potentially uh, someone to, to come get me and it, I'll reach towards you if somebody can reach that far. And also I'm, I'm having to fight the person protecting, the disease protecting itself, and also the person who really is craving a life beyond their trauma or in spite of their trauma. So I would challenge the disease and love the true self. In fact, that's if you talk to enough patients that I worked with, they would say you are very, very frightening and yet extraordinarily caring. So I was frightening to their like their egos or that which they defended themselves with, but very welcoming to the person when they would come back into who they were made to be kind of thing, their feelings, their needs, their desires. So I was thinking of kind of like a rescuer, helper, go to any length to help get them back to where they're made to go while also having to fight the very person who would um, protect themselves to death. A very quick story. Sonia, my wife, is kind of a horticulturalist and a, sort of like a botan, a naturalist. And there were these big worms that were growing on a, a what's called a, moon plant. And she let these worms grow on it. They were like three inches long. And she was going to put a net over them, see what kind of moths they turned into. And then there were these little white feathers sticking out of their backs. And then she started studying the white feathers. It turns out that the white feathers were indications of wasp larvae that had been injected into the caterpillar's guts. And so she said, hey, you need to kill the caterpillars so we can kill the wasps. So she gave up on her experiment. And then when I I got the caterpillars. The caterpillars started fighting like crazy to save themselves, of course, not knowing that they were fighting to protect the wasps that were eating them alive. So I always thought what a marvelous picture of addiction. The very thing I do to protect myself from vulnerability is actually the very thing that's protecting me from having a life. In other words, I fight to protect the disease of addiction. So I think for 20-something years, I worked in the helper who challenged and I think since then I've become more of a helper, just a helper. Mm -hmm. So I, tell me what what can you do with that? I don't know if I'm making much sense on that, but but I noticed at the end of that time, at the end of that twenty years, I found that I was becoming harsh rather than just helpful, and I think I was reaching the end of my maximum benefit of others and maximum benefit to what I would could do in it. So I kind of like knew I was, it was time for me to kind of heal and go because it had all become about uh, rowing towards the Titanic. Hmm. Not okay. about going to shore sometimes and staying there. Mm -hmm. and I come from the addictions world too. 
and and to me, in a lot of ways, in my upbringing, I was uh, probably predominantly sort of a challenger who hid behind a helper too, because it was very important not to expose wishes, uh, anger, demand. I was very cooperative, very helpful, very careful, very intuitive. Used my intuition to predict the moves of others. Uh, protecting my siblings. I mean, you go down the list. I was sort of the mm-hmm. hero child and the mama's helper. So the second in command enabler, the big pretender. Uh, at the same time, uh, there was a in fact, I even during high school, I developed the thing called pleurisy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I thought I was having a heart attack and a lung had deflated. I went to the doctor and the doctor intuitively said, I think he knew a lot about our family at that time. And it became a really good recovery story later. But the doctor said, it's like you have a volcano inside of you, and yet it doesn't have anywhere to go. And then he said, you need to lift weights to make your chest stronger. <laughs> so he, he named, something's going on here. I'm an internist, and I'll stop there. And you need to just get your muscle wall stronger so you won't have pleurisy again. But he, he sort of named like a stress reaction to growing up in a world of secrecy. Mm-hmm. So just so people are listening or knowing, right? Like there's there's a thing called a social two, which could be who you are. Social twos often get confused with threes or eights, okay? Uh, they're powerful people. They love to, uh, they're very relational people. They're ambitious. They tend to know the right people. They do important things. They're, they tend to occupy positions of leadership admired for their accomplishments. They, are, they can conquer an audience in a heartbeat. Conquer an audience in a heartbeat, right? Come into the room, they just know how to, they know how to bring it down. Uh, in fact, their name, this particular style of two, is called ambition, right? They're pretty ambitious, pretty driven people. Uh, they can be competitive. And sometimes unconsciously, I think these types of twos sort of believe that everyone unconsciously wants to be like them. You know what I'm saying? Like if they were just like, you know, they're just like, I just sort of believe everyone wants to be like me, you know, and they're charismatic uh, and um, they can be workaholics. They are enthusiastic. They're confident, sometimes overconfident, uh, can be even a little manic at times, you know, in terms of their go, 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 go thing. And that's a two two that... This is... This is called the social two. Social There's two. three different types of twos. Uh-huh. This is called mm-hmm. the social two. And you see how eight they sound, Anthony? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. All right. So they could be a little bit, this type can actually, this subtype of the two could be a little bit more introverted than the other two twos. Okay. Um, but they're very attuned to their public image. Like I said, like they like a three, though, they can be really goal-oriented. Uh successful they get a lot done they have a reputation as a powerful person the difference though is is that this two unlike an eight is going to be able to be very vulnerable so my question to you chip is how vulnerable can you get very you're comfortable with it extremely extremely in fact uh some of my close people say the one thing about me is you live the books you write you live it out loud, you're mistake ridden in front of us. And uh, also at the same time, celebratory. I, uh, recently, it took uh, many years, but I didn't even think of myself as an author until about four years ago. Mm-hmm. That's uh, 20 something years into writing books. 
It's mm-hmm. uh, uh, claiming myself to be an author. That's 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 somebody who can really write. I'm just putting books out because I want something this to be said, and somebody mm-hmm. needs to hear it. So I <laughs> and even the the novel I wrote called Anthem to the Invisible. I mentioned I wrote it as a message, not as a, so much trying to create a work of art. I wanted the message. There's a message that needs to be heard. I believe needs to be heard. And I, I want to say it badly enough to be willing to be vulnerable or embarrassed or mocked. And I have been mocked on numerous, numerous occasions, especially when I entered the feeling world with writing the book about feelings and their vitality, importance, and their life-saving gifts. And did I feel about being mocked and called weird and so on? And the answer is yes. Hurt, angry, sad. Oh, and lonely. When the voice of the heart came out, oh my goodness. I remember telling Sonia, hey, Sonia, this is going to be so big. I mean, this feeling thing is going to be gigantic because it's the truth about how we're made. And then neuroscience has actually really backed that up. But and basically the first two years, you know, it's like, hey, Sonia, all I'm hearing is crickets. I mean, we got nothing happening. <laughs> Welcome to book world. Oh, right. And, uh, and I remember she said wisely, you know, you're you were just called or expected by God it's just, just to be obedient, just to do what you're made to do. And you did. So let it go. I'm like, okay. And then what's wild is that, uh, you know, 15 years later, past four years, that, that one book has, you know, been noted and been sold more in the past four years than in the first, you know, 10 14. Wow. Well, you know, you're just going to have to be like, uh, you know, some of, some of our greatest artists, right? You're going to have to be dead before people recognize your work. <laughs> you know, That's what, how I what feel. Is, Ian, what's wild is that as I've gotten older, I'm 66 now, right? And uh, I have heard that statement <laughs> more in the past year than my whole life. Yeah, yeah, well, you're, you're dead, Chip. That's when people are going to pay attention, you know? That's, you know what? One thing I've learned about books is to let go of the outcomes. Yeah. You really don't. I, you, I would you, say very, very willing to be vulnerable. And yet I've been, I've been noted by the people who know me as, as, as having courage, mm-hmm. which is a, a willingness to stay in it in spite of the consequences and to be fully hearted in it. So, mm-hmm. you know. so here's, the, here's the message, Anthony, I want people to get when they, then they listen to this interview. That twos can be intense they can be actually as domineering as an eight can be, but very differently. It's really behind a veneer of love sometimes. Now, this is a chip. This is a very not very healthy eight uh, two. I'm describing here. Sometimes it's like the behind the scenes. It's like the love is 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 kind of like um, uh, the thing that's driving the, the the dominance and the and the and the power and the strength and all that stuff. And I just want people to realize, you know, particularly talk about social twos. And then also when we talk about social eights, I mean, you know, these are, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bleed over in these two types that people don't realize. And of course they share a line. So people should pay attention to that and not believe that everybody on the, uh, any, anyone who's a two, you know, is just essentially, you know, a hug a bear that just wants to make a meal for everybody that's got a cold. You know what I mean? Like drop, drop. Not everybody makes, not all twos make casseroles and drop them off at your house. You know what I'm saying? There are some very big, powerful personalities out there that are in the two categories. So, all right, Chip, let's talk about your book. Let's talk about. May I ask you, what, what was negative about that? 
or what was doesn't sound so good about that helper you just described? I rather there's like no, that. There's no, no, there's <laughs> nothing wrong. No, no, there's nothing wrong with somebody who wants to bring a casserole. What I'm trying to do, what I'm no, trying I mean, to say, the powerful helper you were describing. They, they're, they're oh, there's not, nothing wrong with it. Yeah, absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with it. Nothing yeah. wrong with it is as long as it's operating in a, in a level of high self awareness mm-hmm. that it's not you know twos when they're not very helpful healthy chip they so badly want to be liked that they will use helping and meeting the needs of others as a strategy a calculated strategy to win the appreciation of people around them. You then, are describing my childhood. That's what you mean about the veneer, oh, too. All right. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's the veneer. So yeah. sometimes, you know, often, too, what will happen is the two is 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 a, just a great rescuer. They look for people that need rescuing. <laughs> they, they help those people. And then what Maybe they often, they yeah, and then unconsciously what they're trying to do is make the other person feel indebted to them. So that that person will meet their needs, the two's needs, mm-hmm. without, without their asking. ever having to come right out and ask for it. You're describing the, the, the full-blown mechanisms of my codependency as a hero child in my upbringing. All right, let's just talk about codependency, hero child, and through the lens of a two, just for a second before we jump to the book. Okay. This, all right, I want you to give me as concise a definition of codependency, which I know is not an easy thing to do in the current climate. Can you just tell me what a codependent is in a two yeah, or three sentences? A codependent is a person who loses their God-given true self, self-awareness, self-trust, self-worth, and self-intuition in terms of vocalizing what's going on inside of me, given over to the demands, covert or over, demands of caregivers. That's it. The loss okay. of self given over to the demands of caregivers so that <clears throat> love can happen, worth can happen, safety can happen, needs can be met. Okay, really you, great. Pay love. Pay for love. Pay for love. Okay, so now we're into the two and nine categories yeah. here, Anthony, yeah. or a lot of stuff here for twos and nines mm-hmm. to listen to. So the two, the nine, well, let's not go to nines. Twos uh, are, are people who do not believe they can be loved for who they are, but only for what they can do for other people. Yep. That's so they they are they are exquisitely attuned to everybody else's feelings and they have no idea what they're feeling. Yep. They're so good at knowing everybody else's feelings that they forgot their own feelings. Yep. And needs and their own desires, right? And they sacrifice those. Mm-hmm. Right. And they sacrifice all of that on the altar of relationship. Yep. Right. If That's you it. all right. So I just want to say this too, Anthony, because we talk about codependency and we gotta Hey, listen, we got a we got an addiction, this guy on the line here. So we got to talk a little bit about codependency and how it is a natural fit for twos and it is for nines. That personality style chip, that two personality style, I think is more inclined toward codependency than others. Now, I just think there's a weakness, there's a vulnerability for codependency in that type more yeah. than there is in others. But yeah. as we know, any type could be codependent. Yeah. Uh, and I would call my recovery... The, the predominant part of my recovery is about <clears throat> regaining the voice lost in the helper, the person oh. who, who had to do these things so that the people around them would be okay, so that I myself would be okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So that's that was my, <clears throat> my MO operating motif. And then, like you just said, I would only be loved if I performed up to the standard to make them okay. Right. And in a redeemed form, that becomes something pretty good. Like you say, if I'm aware, I'm really aware of what my motives are. It's another matter. 
And that was so beautiful because the intent in the treatment was to truly help, assist. But if you didn't want to go, I remember it was sounded very callous, but like, if you don't want to do what we're doing here to one of the people that in treatment, you need to get out of the way. And once you decide you're going to leave, I won't remember your name, but I'll remember everybody who went. And if you decide to die on our charge, I'll roll you in a ditch and forget you existed because we're going ahead to a place that's different from where we've lived before. So that was sort of the... You can, that sounds very three-ish too, Ian. Yeah, the redeemed helper became somebody who was willing to take the risk and you can think whatever you're going to think. But it was, to me, guided by helping and then we had lots of evidence of it working. So a very, very high success rate of recovery over a period of years for people. So the 80, 85% success rate, which is very high in the addiction mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to point so, that out because you a minute ago, Ian, you said they can be confused with threes and eights. And a lot of the, a lot of what yes. you, Chip, you just described could sound very three-ish, very performance-driven. And if you're either in with me or you're out with me, that whole, that sounds like there's a lot of three. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was huge it, on empathy. It could sound like a three. I, yeah. I, you described you're huge on what? <clears throat> I was very big on, in terms of that, it's like either you're in or you're out. It was more like, I'm really big on invitation, but I'm not going to make you take it. Please come, please come. But if you don't, goodbye. Well, I think a lot of that, I mean, I, I, I know a lot about the addiction universe myself, just from my own personal experience. And I also know that you, you, it requires, I had a, I had a counselor in, in treatment who I think was a social too. He was a hard ass. <laughs> he was a hard ass. But you knew that he was for you, but he 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 wasn't a guy that he was a guy who would cry with you, he would hold you, he would do all that stuff, but uh he also he he towed a line with you. And uh that's kind of that's that sounds familiar to me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I I can see the scenes in my own life in the treatment world that you just described. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Pretty groovy. I like this. We're getting to know Chip Dodd a little bit here, Anthony. Yeah. We're, uh, we're, and how did you know that you knew that he wanted good for you? You said something like that. How did you know that? Um, because there was a kind of vulnerability on his part. Yeah. He wasn't afraid to say that uh, he cared profoundly for you. You know, yeah. he wasn't a guy that was just like a drill sergeant. There was no soft or right. there was no tenderness, yeah. you know. Yeah. He, he was a guy that that himself had a a real kind of vulnerability, yeah. and I think you know, Tip. You know, look, the Enneagram is not a. I want to say this. You know, it's not it's not like a Hagstrom map. You know, where you see it. Remember the old maps. You know, where you used to see where the lines all went. Look, you know, look, twos and eights are connected. There's a lot of powerful energy in that too. It sounds like you, based especially on what you said about your childhood, and some of your early struggles with codependency. Sounds it sounds more two-ish to me, and that you're really plugged in with some eight energy, and uh, also that uh, you worked in an industry or a world ministry, however you want to put it, that required a certain kind of no nonsense. Listen, this is a life or death deal, and so under all that stress, you would also look a lot more like an eight much of the time. So that's what I'm thinking. You know, yeah. Yeah. So you now, have two hard. Hey, Ian, I just did a uh, a podcast with some people, you know, solo parenting. <laughs> and do, do what you want to with this. Well, this is funny. I think so. I did ask, I am your favorite person to 
to do this with, right? <laughs> I'm your favorite interview person, right? And they were like, yeah, you're the favorite. <laughs> well, uh, we uh, we'll we'll put you in the pantheon. We'll we'll yeah. see if by the end of, if the, if by the end of the interview I'll let you know if you're the favorite. But yeah, right now, I, I love, right I now love, you're listen, you're in I running. just love being loved, man. I just love being loved. <laughs> <laughs> hey everybody, if you've been listening to Typology very long, you know that I am a huge believer in the intensive counseling programs at Restoring the Soul in Denver, Colorado. So I am super excited to tell you that now through the end of 2023, Restoring the Soul is offering special discounts to Typology listeners. So if you are at a place in your life where you are really wanting to press into those challenging personal or relational issues that keep you from the life you want to be living, listen to me. If you are in a season where personal or relational brokenness is weighing you down, now is the perfect time to contact Restoring the Soul. My longtime friend, and I'm talking 35 years, friends, Michael Cusick and his team of world-class therapists have created an intensive counseling process where you don't have to wait months or even years to find the personal or relational healing you need. Instead, you meet with them in half-day blocks over one or two weeks so you can get unstuck from the place you are to where you want to be. Now, Anthony, you have done one of these intensives with Michael Cusick and Restoring the Soul, right? Oh man, I have. I love Michael. I got to be with him for a week. For me, he is like a counselor meets spiritual director, and I would say he has razor sharp perception, and he uncovered some things for me that were life-changing. I love that. So tell people about this incredible offer. Yeah, this is great. So right now, there's a special offer for Typology listeners only. Restoring the Soul is offering $1,000 off any counseling intensive that is booked before the end of the year and $2,000 off the regular price if you book and attend a counseling intensive in 2023. No. Yes. All right, so that's $1,000 off any intensive that's booked before the end of the year mm-hmm. and 2000 if you attend one of their programs in 2023. Yes, amazing. That's a huge break. That is a huge, huge break. So listen, friends, take advantage of this amazing opportunity by contacting Restoring the Soul at www.RestoringTheSoul.com. That's www.RestoringTheSoul.com. All right, let's talk about feelings. Okay. Because if you're a two, you know more about feelings than any other number, pretty much. That's actually overstated, but what the heck? There you go. Yeah. Talk to me about you. You're like all about the feeling thing, man. Like, what's that about? Yes. Uh, Well, all about the feeling thing is that it turns out, uh, using some of the modern parlance, is that we actually come out of the womb looking for who's looking for us and the language that we're speaking is actually the language of the heart. When a baby cries out, <clears throat> the Apgar cries out, reaches out, and craves, they're craving that connection. And the only thing that's guiding that baby is what I call the Imago Dei. It, it's not what I call, what, what it's always been called, the image bearing of God taking action. And this action is occurring without a thought process and without a verbal language, but a language is being spoken and a knowledge is being expressed. But it turns out that it's feeling guided. It is disturbance looking for regulation, and the regulation occurs through relationship. And if I had to say relationship occurs 
through the being able to be vulnerable with how we're created, like it, uh, the ride at Disney World called Small World. There's an extraordinarily profound stanza. It says it's a world of laughter and a world of tears, a world of hope and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. And that's a, like a cartoonish statement to back up what the professionals have been telling me for years is that the DNA of all human beings is 99.9% identical. And the DNA of a human being is also emotional and spiritual. And the, the expression of that DNA is through the need for connection and feelings are what connect us. They allow us to relate to each other. That's where empathy becomes compassion. It's just a whole series of things. But the main premise is that you and I are created as emotional and spiritual creatures created to do one thing in life, and it's live fully. But we can't live fully unless we're fully in relationship with ourselves, others, and God. That's the big summary foundational statement. And neuroscience has been backing that up now for quite a while. But when the book first came out, it was, like I say, heard crickets. A near friend of mine just finished up a clinical study, neuroscience, in relationship to you know humans and, and also connected to spirituality. And uh, he, he was my clinical director for years. He said everything we did was we were doing neuroscience before it was proven, so to speak. So feelings so, are the connector. All right. So you talk about in the, in the Voice of the Heart, you talk about these eight feelings, mm -hmm. right? The gift of the eight feelings. Let's uh, just briefly walk me through that a little bit. I think that's important yeah. for people to know about. Yeah. Uh, the, we, we have eight core feelings, just like we have three primary colors certain number of musical notes, certain number of organs in the body. We have a certain number of core feelings. And they're just tools. They're not the end all and be all. They're not above love. And they're certainly not God. They're just human responses to life on life's terms. We've been given a feeling called fear, which allows us to ask for help. Sadness, which allows us to grieve loss and reach for comfort. We've been given loneliness, which allows us to say, hey, I am very human and in need of relationship with others and God. We've been given hurt, which allows us to have pain and reach for healing. We've been given anger to allow us to express what really matters to us. Like, what do I hope for, wish for, what do I hunger for, long for, and thirst for? Anger, which lets us develop a thing called passion. We've been given shame, not all shame. We've been given healthy shame, which Brene Brown and others don't really recognize. It's the dependency feeling. Healthy shame is the recognition of how we're all made the same. And there are those who deny it and those who accept it. We've been given the opportunity to develop gift, guilt. And guilt is a feeling that allows us through our healthy shame to say, I'm sorry, and perhaps be forgiven and reunited. And then gladness is joy that has sadness in it. In other words, I can celebrate living knowing full well it's not going to last. And... Anyone who's good at the seven feelings we don't like will wind up having a sense of confidence and a sense of competence that allows them to have a sense of okayness or gladness. So people ask me, how come there are seven bad ones and only one good one? And to me, it's very clear that these all eight feelings are good because each feeling allows us to live fully in a tragic place. This is a scary place that's lonely and it hurts and it's sad and it is angering requires energy and motion to live. 
And for those people who are Bible people, I didn't, I didn't connect this in the beginning of the voice of the heart, but this is extraordinarily biblical. I mean, it's, it's astounding to me how biblical it all is that the Shema prayer, I mean, the hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. It's a descending order of importance that, that bring your emotional life and your presence to the God who made you so you can be in relationship, attend to that spiritual connection soul, let your mind be engaged with how you're created to speak how you're made emotionally and spiritually, and then also let make sure your body's healthy to carry all that around. But we, we end up majoring in the minors, our appearance and strength, and we wind up minoring in the majors because life hurts so much. We minor in the heart and major in our strength. And so I wrote The Voice of the Heart not as a criticism of intellect or uh, a willpower or morality, but that those things are dry and dusty and won't give us what we're looking for unless the heart's fully engaged in it. So I pound the drum of the heart not to negate anything else or discredit anything, but it's the forgotten territory that I grew up denying and then every addict I've ever worked with and most people live in a prison of survival because what they're doing is protecting themselves from the vulnerability of expressing how they're really made so they can identify and connect with how others are made the same way and yeah. then be a relationship. So you're talking about here about how, how do we best embody and live out of and express who we are as human beings through the language of the heart, through, through feelings, right, to become dare I say, uh, fluent in the language of feelings, which, by the way, twos are in the feeling triad of the Enneagram, right? Uh, twos, threes, and fours. We think threes probably have more feeling stuff going on than any other type. But twos, man, y'all are super, super tuned in on the whole feeling realm. And so it makes sense to me that a two would want to be, uh, be able to write about that which is uh, really their first language, which is feelings. Mm-hmm. That so makes sense. Even the 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 whole the, my my picture of of how like much of life works is that I created a thing called the spiritual root system, a heart based, God created based humanity system, upon which all the other tools and techniques that we have are based. The spiritual root system is a philosophy, not a not a therapeutic technique, and. Uh, the, 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 upon which the Enneagram would sit, upon which IFS would sit, upon which engineering even sits, upon which a lot of other things sit. And it contends that even an engineer who would be a, what, whatever it might be on the Enneagram, the tendency to simply not have feelings, that even the, the engineer reawakened to the rest of their own story would not necessarily be a feelings to for example, but would be a lot more capable of intimacy. Like I had a neighbor uh, that um, crossed the street, literally across the street from me, went to church with him too. He said, I used to think you were the weirdest person I'd ever met. And I kind of thought like you were sort of like ridiculous. And uh, he's an engineer, electrical engineer. And then he got into a mess in his marriage and was, honestly, he was dying and uh, uh, emotionally withering, physically showing the signs of it. His body was showing the signs. 
And I, I kind of entered his life and said, you know, it's time to do something different. And, um, you know, kind of put the voice of the heart and therapy in his hands and get going. And, you know, with somebody else I referred him to. And and it, it's amazing. He, a year later, he said, I always thought you were so weird. I did not know what I was missing. So the spiritual root system is about how you and I are created as feeling, needing, desiring, longing, and hoping creatures at core. And that actually thinking our mind's activities are a secondary development to how we're created. I believe that we're feeling creatures who happen to be able to think rather than thinking creatures who have to just deal with feelings. We were feeling before we ever thought, and we're still that same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And then I think everything that we do is based on that. So I'm always in pursuit of the what's happening in your heart territory because a person can't connect with another person except transactionally unless they've connected limbically or heart mm-hmm. connection, like re- relationship, rela- related relative. Mm-hmm. Now, to being a relative, we can have communion, community, you know. Wow, Chip, this, is, this has been an incredibly rich conversation. Anthony, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, if you would quickly explain the reason that the feelings are so important is because it it helps us understand our needing, longing, desiring. Can you like just because to me that's like yeah, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. See, I, I've watched and 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 through my you know my doctorate and all that stuff, but uh, in my own recovery, is that that we have six freedoms that kindergartners are genius at using. And then we end up giving our freedoms up and we end up giving our genius up with it. There's some studies have shown that as time goes, we become less creative, less imaginative. But we're all created to see what we see, be able to say what we feel, therefore to know what we need, to be able to talk about what's happening in our hearts and trust that someone outside of me will receive it and value it. And then to imagine our lives lived fully. So when you feel something, your feelings take you straight to needs. Like I'm sad, I have a loss, I'm in need of regeneration or comfort. And that that need turns into a desire, which lets me reach out, longing for a world where loss doesn't exist, but we know it does. And in spite of that, we can find a way to want to live again. And longings awaken us to hope regenerated. And we know that hope deferred makes us sick. And once a person loses their feelings, they lose connection with their needs. They lose the the openness to express desire because of the vulnerability it creates. They give up on the idea of, even though the world will never be perfect, I'm still going to do what I can in it. And there was long for justice, even though I know I'm never going to find justice in this world, I'm going to fight for it or fight for home. And then if you're doing those four, you can't give up on hope. But when a person loses those four, the last thing that, that, that causes pain is hope. And in the addictions world, you're numbing your feelings to lose contact with your needs, to shut down desire for live how you're created. Longings are a fool's game. And hope is the cursed experience that won't go away because I'm still wishing life were different than it is. And I contend that, see, people, predominantly suicide is directly connected 
is I was trained in, in the doctoral program that it's helplessness and hopelessness. And once I got out into my own deeper recovery, it's, it's helplessness for sure. But when a person commits suicide, it's not because they're hopeless. It's because the pain of hope won't stop. And it's like, I can't stop wishing my life were different. I can't stop wishing. And so the suicide is stopping the pain of hoping the last thing left, the eternal flame that you can't get rid of. I mean, it's in everything that has DNA, everything that has DNA. I know it's called nerves when you chop a snake's head off and it still moves around. I know it's called nerves. I get the biology of that. But there's an energy in biology that we can't put under a microscope. It's called the creation's urge, the demiurge of life. And so those nerves are also desire being expressed to stay alive, you know? So, well, hey, listen, everybody, uh, just by way of reminder, we're talking to our friend, Dr. Chip Dodd, author of The Voice of the Heart, A Call to Full Living, uh, Discover the Gift of the Eight Feelings. Chip, this has been a rich conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, Ian, thank and, you. Uh, Glad to be with you. Uh, I know that people can find you if they go to chipdodd.com. They'll find out uh, all about you, and I'm sure they'll find out about book links, and they'll find about Instagram, which is at Dr. Chip Dodd. Man, thank you for coming on the show. We know we're, we're your second interview today, and uh, but so thanks for bringing all, all of you to it. And, um, man, we're going to have you on again. Thank you very much, Ian. And, Anthony, great to see you again. And God bless you guys. Same. Thanks so much. Typology Tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time. <laughs>